Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I've noticed too is um, I will open uh, different tickets in, you know, when you, when you go through the initial ticket process, you have to pick a, a category and a subcategory. Yeah. What I'll do is I will open two simultaneous, almost every time now that I've learned this works really well is you go two simultaneous. I know, like you said, Danny, Amazon might yeah. hate this, but if you actually are trying to get something done, you go and pick, you know, the, the first one you do is the one that is in the category that makes the most sense. Then the next one you go is to something that's maybe part of the problem, but not the main category. And you open a ticket there as well. Um, I've found that, you know, because you have now kind of two separate groups working on it, one might hit a wall and the other one might find a solution or vice versa. So that's another kind of little trick that I've, I've uh, found out over the years with all the uh, hundreds of tickets I've had to open. Yeah. So here's another thing which is quite interesting. There is no financial incentives for associates. All the targets are based on efficiency and quality of where they have met the correct standard, right? So on the flip side of that, if they don't meet the targets, they will get closely monitored, right? So it actually becomes more painful for them because the QA teams are going to be more and more on their back to, to meet the certain standards. And that but, also opens up that opportunity for them to earn other money elsewhere, which is what happened um, when a bunch of the support reps were caught in this, you know, where they were doing certain sellers favors. And um, so it's like kind of bad that they don't get any kind of monetary, you know, compensation because their pay probably isn't great. And, um, well, on the and you know, that kind of sets that up. Yeah, so the, the, the reward of being efficient and good quality is the opportunity for lots of promotions. It's always encouraged. So that is your upside. So whilst you don't get a financial there, you'll get out of tier one, say, yeah, T1 of Seller Central, and then you quickly get moved up if you're good in the Excel, what you do. But yeah, you're always going to get people on the take. Now, this is the thing, and I don't want to tie in with the people that are on the take because they're good and bad people on this planet, as we know, right? Um, but when there is an issue with a ticket, like let's just say a, an ASIN has been yanked, with that as an example, as a ticket, they can log into your Seller Central account. So any of these reps can access any of our accounts, but purely based on the condition of relating to a ticket. Now, what you would say, well, what happens when reps are working from home? Because a lot of them do, they're distributed. They have a token system, which is all generated on a fingerprint ID. So with the home systems, they're very secure as well. So I want to make sure that people understand that that's clear. But I found that kind of uh, interesting as well. And the 17 to 18 minutes. Um, he's annotated this here. So that's something, how a ticket is broken down, if this is any help for the audience. 17 to 18 minutes, right? So there's four parts to a case ticket outcome. One, pending Amazon action, PAA, in case Amazon needs to perform additional research and the seller needs to wait for the outcome. Number two, merchant, uh, pending merchant action, PMA, more information is needed from the seller to be of support. The current information provides limited or incomplete uh, for us to proceed as support. Number three, resolved case is done and resolved, or the conclusion is that Amazon point of view, we cannot be of support whatsoever reason, and we need to inform that the seller uh, that we cannot resolve this. Number four, 
re reply and keep working. This is used with more time is needed to perform research and want to notify the seller in the meantime that we're working on it and we'll come back to them as soon as we have an answer and reply. So you've got a key thing there. The other thing is that annotate each of the tickets so that everyone is in uh, singing from the same hymn sheet. They use all the same SOPs and everything else. Where is the ticket information? I was going to tell you about annotations are added to open tickets. So this is what goes on your ticket as you, you do it. Number one, summary of the seller issue. Two, research done, uh, which workflow followed? Free ASIN, uh, all the numbers, info plus SOP URLs followed for troubleshooting, which means they've got that catalog of uh, you, uh, the SOPs and they put that in the case ticket, the URL. So whoever picks it up can go to it. Uh, plus they've lots of tools used, like this guy that I'm speaking to, he's been there three months. He's now using 60 seller tools to support at his skill level. And he's only been there three months. And there's a lot more tools involved in that. Um Tools and TT trouble ticket. Number when escalated ticket has been created by an associate. Number four, propose action taken summary or reply question to seller. So think every ticket that they do, they have to annotate that ticket in four parts. I think someone said it about a while ago, because one of the things I want to go down the uh, road of is performance team and stuff. You might not be able to get much from there, but I remember speaking to people before who do a lot of the suspension um, reinstatements and stuff they were always talking about annotating like so if you've got an account and you kept sending the wrong information it gets annotated that's going to mark hard against you because you've not paid attention to the point they may not be able to uh to recover that suspension if you push too many times so just be aware is that everything we do they're being monitored and also every ticket raised as the four parts to its summary and the problem solving issues that's crazy. You could really go down that rabbit hole for a long, long time. There's so much there. Yeah. Um, the other thing I the quick point I wanted to make, though, for everyone yeah. listening or watching is, is I used to, you know, everybody hates filling out surveys or even those little things. But when you get us, uh, make sure that you li leave positive reinforcement for the, the agents that give you good support and yeah. negative for the ones that don't because Amazon uses that feedback loop and all that will do will support sellers better, right? If you get people who suck and, and they weed those people out, then that's, that means that next time your ticket's going to be handled by somebody who's been reviewed positively or, or have got, has gotten positive feedback. So I encourage you guys to do that. I used to never do it, but the last couple of years I've been doing it just because I'm like, I need to provide, you know, feedback loops so that, you know, so Amazon can actually take action on, on the ones who perform well and the ones who don't. So um, yeah. That's my ask and suggestion to you guys. So there's, a, there's one thing I want to quickly tell you about. Sure. The, the frustrated button. I haven't checked yet, but he was telling me because I didn't get a chance to tech and I don't know if it's fully correct, but I double check with him for next week's show because we're going to do another one. But he says when you have problems in, and you've raised the tickets, if you hit the frustrated button, right, they, that the frustrated tickets are higher, uh, higher, higher ranked. But some people like Tao saying, I haven't seen the frustrated button. I haven't looked yet, but I'll get that confirmation. And if that's true, if there is, once you've raised the ticket and you've got, you know, like normally go, was this any good? Yes or no. If there is a frustrated button there, if you are frustrated, hit that. Because apparently that they'll rank frustrated tickets higher, which is something I didn't know about. And the captive team thing. Do you remember a couple of years ago, people going, yeah, yeah, we're going to call the captive team. And then you phone up and no one knew who the captive team was, right? Now, we don't know if it's true or not, but the, 
captive team might just be made up. It doesn't exist. It just might be a posh name for tier two or tier three. And there's no such thing as a captive name, but it was a really good word to use, a buzzword, if you like, if you're selling uh, masterminds. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? I think, you know, and things yeah. can come up into the Amazon sphere that just don't make any sense. That may be not true, but it could be true. But he's been there only three months. So I'm trying to get him to dig and see if there was ever a captive team going back three to five years. It's interesting. I think there was, or like you said, Danny, that might've just been kind of what people called it, but I know that there was, uh, I went to college in North Dakota without going too far. And, and a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Amazon has a big foothold in North Dakota. And so I used to have phone numbers because I had friends that worked there like uh, way in the past, but in the, in the past, you would have these special phone numbers that if you knew you could actually call and get somebody on the phone. Like I used to be able to call the catalog team directly. Like a lot of those direct connection numbers have catalog have, team yeah catalog re, team but yeah have, have gone away but even that though yeah. they've gone away because amazon is now tr it, it, the mm. word gets out and then it, and then it's useless because it just gets yeah. inundated right same thing with jeff at amazon.com good luck using that these days because you know it's like yeah. the word was out that that's how you could get a quick es escalation this is the other thing i'm like with the shows i'm gonna be i have to be sensible if he turns around and gives me a bit of information and that you know tens of thousands of people jump on and it's just going to flood. It doesn't help anyone. What I'm trying to do with the series is really educate people on so that they can take away from the shows and go, do you know what? I'm going to write my ticket like this. Now I'm going to be extra nice to this person on here. Oh, to resolve that. If I go to this, I want to give them all the ideas of like, how can we create an SOP of creating the master ticket? What is the most optimized way of developing a ticket to get the best result possible? Rather than saying, you know, here's the captive team, if it exists, their telephone number, and then blurting it out on seller sessions for, do you know what I mean? It will just, it's a point. It doesn't yeah, make absolutely. sense. Absolutely. You know. All right, guys, we're going to switch to something else. But uh, cool. if you want to learn more, uh, make sure you, you subscribe to Seller Sessions. It is one of the better podcasts. You know, I've, I've listened to many. Uh, I, I think Danny does a really great job. So go check that out. Great info there. Lots of great people there. Um, it's on all the major platforms. Go check that out. Uh, let's transition, though, Danny, because one of my favorite yeah. things, which is some of your favorite things, is, you know, uh, you know, algorithms and PBC. Yeah. So yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the A9 uh, mm -hmm. algorithm, yeah. Uh, I would love to to hear kind of your your uh, insight and maybe some of the ways that you think that it's uh, progressing and maturing and changing. Yeah. Um, I would love to to dive into that. Okay, so effectively, what I did is a few months ago, I dug out the um, well, I found it. I started with a video, and which is a Doria Sonica from the A nine team. And then I started to find research papers like Amazon.Science. So what I'd worked out is A9 works completely different to what most people talk about. And once I got hold of the information, I sat down for a few weeks and going, how can I turn this into layman's term? Because for you, Andy, we can geek out on it. I'm not a developer, you are, but you'll go, yeah, 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 this is great. But for general listeners, they've got to try and understand it. So I thought, how do we take this, which would normally send a glass eye to sleep, and make it more plausible so we broke it into into different uh, into different sections but the key thing that i find uh, with a9 is that um 
it operates differently to a lot of the way that, that that people talk about it. And so when we look at a listing, we think of title, bullet points, blah, 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 right? But we don't think of, well, how did it get there? We know that the uh, conversion rate makes an impact. We know that add to cart is massive, but add to cart only works as far, as far as page one. You need keywords with sales to bind past the top of page one. So we know that add to cart is a massive, massive signal. But when you break it out, like, for instance, no one was talking about um, negative and positive labels. So when you think of negative and positive labels, if you're looking at your listing, you're, you could be saying to yourself, well, we have a conversion which is on a continuum. If someone lands on your, uh, on your uh, product page and they stay there and they don't bounce off, there's a micro conversion, like a credit going on there because the engagement, you scroll, you're engaging, right? You add to cart, it's another signal, you're engaging. So you've got to think of conversions on a, on a continuum. The biggest thing I took away from all the A9 stuff is Amazon is obviously about relevance, but they want to know just as much about what you didn't want to what you did, right? And what that is, that it falls under, these training sets fall under negative and positive labels. Now, positive labels is clicks, add to cart, engagement, and things like that, different. And it's all de derived around behavioral aspects as part of their training sets, which make up as part of the algorithm. So when you're writing your listing and you're saying, I want to write the uh, the feature benefits and everything in the bullet points, you're, you would think about it from um, a copywriting point of view and a human person reading it point of view. But if you took it into a 3D mode, you'll then start to think about it from a negative label and a positive label point of view. And then you start getting into things like the hunger score, which is very complex for people to really understand. But hunger score, you could uh, consider that is FOMO. So what the hunger score does, it searches down by category, but it's looking for the stuff that you are not interested in, don't touch. And I think what that really is about is that they're trying to unearth if there's anything they've actually missed. So they're collecting all this information. So it all comes down to relevance. You've got on one side, you've got the positive label, the other side, you've got the negative label. Let's look at another reason why the positive and negative labels would work. If you're sending traffic, PPC traffic to a listing, we now know that if you send traffic there and the conversion rate is poor, that's going to have a negative impact organically, right? Goes back, negative labels, positive labels. What is under the negative labels? Well, it's unseen. It's why is that information not being utilized there, et cetera. So when you are looking at optimizing your listings, think about it. Will this fall under a negative label? Will it fall under a positive label on top of what you're already thinking about when you're optimizing a listing? So it goes back from being a static vector, if you like, that here is our listing. It's very static and we're looking at one dimensional. Let's look at it from a three uh, dimensional point of view. Um, we know that most of it is based around um, uh, machine learning. It goes back as far as 2016. They was using 100 machine learning models. We know the importance of being paid run. I'll give you some data here. 70% of Amazon customers never click past the first page of search results. Then you've got 35% of Amazon shoppers click on the first product featured on the search page. Yeah. Uh, and the first three items displayed in search results account for 64% 
of the clicks. And this is why PPCs come to more for Amazon's the paper play. So it's a great model for them to earn money because everyone who is ranking organically up here, they're being pushed down. They're in like the active position on the page, not the organic or the ad position. You know, organics is sitting down in position overall of number four or number five. So a lot of the PPC clicks, so top of searches could become more expensive. So this is why it's so important to, to dial in. Uh, the other thing is, if we take some stuff off the table, there's no such thing as ATEM. It doesn't exist. It's not in any of the science literature. None of the engineers that I've spoken to have talked about it. And just to give you one quote from Amazon here, small improvements in relevance can positively impact millions of shoppers. If that's the case, why would you take A9, throw it in the dustbin, and dial out A10? You wouldn't. And it's not structured that way, right? What other people don't realize as well, it's based down catalogs, indexes, categories, each marketplace. So when we see a push or we observe something and we see listings have a, a shuffle, if you like, you go, oh, right, it's an algorithm update. That isn't happening in the UK when it's on the US. That's not happening in Germany. These training sets and these, these uh, periods that they're measuring this, this data in, they collect that information, all the behavioral data, then they're going to do the push. And when they do the update, it's on that marketplace. So it's not global. All of these teams are working differently on the different marketplace. So indexes and everything are different. Relevancy is going to be slightly different to marketplaces. But overall, they, yes, are using the full structure of A9. And this is why Add to Cart works so well. And it will carry on working so well for a long period of time. Because it's such a machine. You can't turn, the, you can't steer the ship round and start going, oh, well, we're not going to use Add to Cart no more as a really strong signal. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So this is something that's developed over time. And I think it's really important that people think, think about, go on. I think my key takeaways from kind of your sum up of the A9 algorithm is that number one, we need to think about more than just, okay, I have the right keywords, you know, like yeah. I have the right keywords and my listing looks good. We yeah. need to be thinking about our products from how from what page ones we want to be on. I'm always talking about that. I'm like, what's your page one? Because of yeah. course, top of search is so important, but the right search is so important, right? We want to be the most relevant so that they add to cart, right? So that we can get that going on. So I'm hearing that, you know, with the ever increasing cost to get to top of search, it's yeah. more important to really, really dial in like, what are those search terms that that customer that is so relevant for your product are going after? And, you know, I see people are just even more successful now. Um, you know, we recently had some, um, some really great folks come in and talk in our mastermind group about um, this ranking strategy that they're using. And they're really focused in on some keywords that are, um, that are the most important and very few keywords to begin with. Yeah before yeah. they're moving on to others. So I think when we're thinking about our, our keyword strategy and our advertising strategy, now more than ever, we really, really need to know what our page ones are and mm -hmm. make sure that we're paying attention to how customers interact with our listing. Yeah. You know, not only our conversion rates, but where are we converting? How are we converting? 
when are we getting that awesome add to cart? You know, um, what about you, Danny? What do you recommend for people in really reducing their costs for their PPC and choosing the right keywords so that they can get the most out of the algorithm's favor? I think the newer people are definitely burning their money because they're getting these massive long keyword lists from really great third party tools. But if they're not in the brand analytics report, most of it is junk, is garbage, right? So I always say to people, take your long list of 100 or so, wash that list against your brand analytics report. You might find there's only five in there. And so you're chasing and pushing all of this data around on hundreds of keywords, which are mostly useless because they've got less than 10 searches a day or less on the US market. And when and you say... More, when you say brand analytics report, are you talking about putting your ASIN into that search terms report and seeing where you have the most click share? Yeah, or your broad keywords. It doesn't matter if it's Asians or not. What you're looking for is, do my keywords appear in the brand analytics report? Let's just say you sell beard oil. So you'd put beard oil and then you look at all the different permutations of beard oil, organic beard oil, blah, 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 right? Men's beard oil. And then you start to see them and you see the frequency rank, you know, that's one's. 12,000, 16,504. And you're looking for that. But what I'm trying to get across, what can be very scary for people, we know that the US market has great long tail. And it's good to have long tail. There's no doubt about it. And it, and it makes up sales. Brandon Young does some really good stuff with that in the way that he operates. And I totally agree with it. But what you've got to be careful of if you're not at Brandon's level and know what you're doing, right? You might have misgivings thinking, great. This tool's just given me, it's got a hundred keywords. I've got plenty of opportunity. You put it through the brand analytics report. There's four of them are in there. Then your opportunity has gone from, you know, the other 96 has disappeared. You've got four. Are you going to have also ran keywords? And then you dial in on one or two and you might not be able to afford the PPC on it. Or they may be so far back that even if you run PPC on them, you're not going to get enough sales velocity to get anywhere with those keywords. Great, you might be on page one because this, you know, it's got 20 searches a month, but that's what's useful as the chocolate ashtray. You need to get that balance, right? Because if the keyword's too big and you run PPC on it, you don't get impression share. This is why people get 20 bucks a click and then they spend all this money and they don't realize, they go, well, keyword, this keyword, because we have like a, a calculation on, uh, do you want me to quickly go through a quick calculation to give people when they're looking at keywords, because I think it starts to bring home. Absolutely. Um, and, and the other thing quickly, I want to mention just, I think what, what Danny is saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Danny is, yeah. you know, rather than go after the thousand keywords, you know, that, that you, these tools are spitting out every, every iteration and what they literally do is get the keyword, then add an A to it and do a search. And then, so you, yeah. I mean, you might get one or two sales a month from those keywords, but the other thing you have to realize is the more keywords you have, the harder it is to manage, right? It's the 80, 20 rule. If you have, yeah, you know, exactly. a thousand keywords, then having to go through and try to optimize all those keywords is going to be really difficult rather than really focusing in on that, that precise target. And then just continuously optimizing those keywords, those small sets of keywords, and even on your, 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 um, you know, products, can, your, can your I, product targeting, et cetera. Would you mind if I share my screen, it might be a bit easier just to no. give. Sure. Yeah, would love that a bit of context all right so let me just pull this up can you see that okay yep yep so i've just i've just mentioned here never go beyond the brand analytics report you might you know there's an exception to the rule and you're going to get some people go yeah i had a few sales but generally if it's 10 searches a day you're looking 300 searches a month 
by the time you get into position one, two, or three, a percentage of that is the click-through rate. From the click-through rate, how many sales you're going to get off that when that's shared against other people on that page? Not a lot, right? So you've got to think about it that way. Um, this is what I'm going to give you an example of here. So ranking with Amazon PPC, right? So if your PPC is competitive conversion rate and generates enough orders, it would definitely boost your organic rankings. Here, each bar represents one week's worth of data over the period of eight weeks. So in the left column, we see the average organic rank, right? And then where the smallest bars show rank one is as good as you're going to get, because it's gone from, hold on, it's going to go, it's gone from up in the gods to position number one over a period of time. So we've got organic rank number one on the first column, number two on the second, and number one on the third column. Each of those, as I said, represents eight weeks as you see them coming down into the number one position. So you can see these move quickly towards rank one over the first month here. The remaining columns, we see impressions, orders, and spends. Uh, these are mostly trending upwards, possibly plateauing after the first month or so. So you can see impressions as the organic rank comes down, the impressions increase, as you can see that, not exactly, but, you know, it's heading that direction. And then you've got the orders column and the spend column. So you can see the top one is where we spent most of the money, but it got 219 orders from it. Now, in order for stuff like this to work, one, you've got to be dialed in on your keywords, right? And two, your listing should be very well optimized. This conversion rate plays a massive factor in the success. As a bad conversion rate will become a hindrance to your organic rank, pulling you underwater every time you send non-converting traffic. Like I mentioned earlier on the show, conversion works on a continuum. So the algorithm is the multifaceted view of a conversion rather than what we see as a sale, right? When the customer clicks on your product, you're effectively getting a micro conversion credit on that query. If the customer spends time on your product page and does not bounce off, you're getting another micro conversion. The more time is spent on the page, in principle, the higher the engagement. And when the customer adds a product to car, again, you're getting another positive signal. So I'll skip this abandonment stuff at the moment, but um, where's the breakdown? Right, so in order to set this up, you guys know this very, very basic setup, but you can do this across multiple campaigns. But one keyword, one ASIN, one campaign. Isolating like this means that we can measure the top of search on a granular level, right? Because for sponsored products, top of search placement statistics is on a campaign level, right? So that's why I would set them up that way. So going back to the algorithm here, the ranking algorithm compares many different factors, two of them, order history and the conversion rate for a specific product listing and that said keyword, right? So they're all attuned in from those two components down to that individualized keyword level. This is then compared to all of your competitors on the same keyword. If you get a higher conversion rate through PPC sales, then you're gaining points on both of these metrics. In what we've seen in-house, your relevance will also get a boost from this, but then we face the problems with ranking high-velocity products, which I touched on before I set up the, uh, the slides. This comes back down to the ranking algo. There are only so many ad positions or placements worthy of eyeballs, which is obviously on page one. So for a high-velocity keyword with established ASIN of already converting, it could be extraordinarily difficult to break through and get impressions even with a phenomenal conversion rate. This is why you hear people bidding 20 bucks a click without getting any impressions. 
So depending on your stamina, and if you keep going over time, Amazon's algo may determine to favor your campaign, but there's no telling how long this will be. It could be that one or more of your competitors go out of stock, and that's where you get to sneak in, right? Again, this is where it could give you a nice booster. So what is the answer? Is there a special calculation? Well, the answer is yes, no, and common sense. So these are arbitrary numbers here, just to make a point of the demonstration, right? So what we have here is K1 is keyword one, K2 is keyword two. This represents the, the ad placements, P1, P2, P3, okay? So you can see that keyword one, super high velocity, we've made up the numbers here to make them stand out, right? So if you was going for placement one, you'd need to sell a thousand units a day to get to placement one. You're not gonna do that, right? It's unrealistic. Placement number two, 500. Placement number three, 250. Again, pretty much unrealistic unless you've got deep pockets. Then you look at keyword number two. So you're looking for the sweet spot, right? You're looking for the midtail keywords then you go, okay, where is, the, where is the low hanging fruit? Well, position number four, I only need five cells. So if we use the data points here, how many orders a day can a top of search placement generate if expressed at a 20% conversion rate? So to get to position number four, you might aim for at least five orders a day, right? So it's more plausible to reach. If your conversion rate is 20%, that might mean five orders a day divided by conversion rate is equal to 25 clicks. So if the cost per click is $5 for that position, it will cost you $5 divided by conversion rate, which ends up being $25 per acquisition on average or $125 per day. But that's only when it converts, right? Which comes back to the point of gaining impression share and the cost of running expensive top of search campaigns. And usually a market that is red hot, generally we have a higher cost per click. So how do we launch PPC and then taper off knowing where our numbers land for break even? Because this is kind of difficult. So we kind of come up with a, an options here, but they all present themselves their own pros and cons, right? So if we look at either way, you're gonna to need to pick your poison, adjusting the bid out of the gate. So if you make bid adjustment, this will almost certainly affect your ad position in the ad placement algorithm. So what you could do is start putting back on the daily budget versus decreasing the bid and maybe losing on the position there. At least with the budget caps, your campaign would run in most cases. But if you lose advertising for the rest of the day after your budget is burned. So what I mean by that, if you adjust the bidding and you're in position number two, you may come down to number four because you've adjusted that cost per click bid. But if you adjust the, uh, the cam campaign cap on a daily basis, You'll get those positions, but you're likely to run out of budget at some point in the day. So that's why you play with the budget on a daily basis rather than touch the click because you want to maintain the position. But you could have a hybrid version. So twice a day, you mainly adjust the top of search, boosting your campaign. So you can go in, boost that to 900, then 12 hours later, drop it to zero. And then you work out a sweet spot. You play around with those two factors and find that sweet spot. And then over time, you start to get your ranking costs under control, or you don't, because it's always a risk, right? So you're looking to rank midtail keywords, let's say, take four, six to eight week period. By the time you get to eight weeks, you're looking to do the pullback process. And Danny, I'm always surprised at how many people don't know about placements and how to adjust those percentages. Yeah, so that, that, there's many ways to skin a cat, as we know, but that's one way that we're trying to present something that's quite complex 
and there's way too many variables to say this is the absolute way around it but by working off an assumption of a calculation at 20 percent uh, and using ad placement as your reference it may help people that going after really big keywords realize i can't go after those keywords because they a lot of people won't do that calculation they won't sit there and think oh yeah in order to be successful with this and start using that keyword to rank i mean i need to get 50 ppc sales a day that's really hard do you know what i mean like when you don't think about it, especially if you're starting with zero campaign history. So you've got no conversion history. You've got a newly launched listing. It's no wonder you don't get the impression share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why you have to be realistic and start with longer tail keywords and work your way up. Let's use the beard oil analogy. Beard oil will be the number one keyword. But what about if it's organic beard oil? So you'd start in your campaigns with organic beard oil and try and rank that. And then as you start getting traction on that, you drop off the organic and then you target beard oil because you've got relevance there from the organic beard oil and you've got conversion history. So what you do is you use the longer tail until you narrow down to the head tail. It's just a, as a basic example. Yeah, Danny, <clears throat> I love all that, Danny. And, and yeah, and, and what a lot of people don't realize, and this is some of the stuff I've been trying to train people on for a really long time now is you know, just because it's the, the top, uh, you know, most search keyword does not make it the best keyword, right? So I'm going to give a quick example here. So yeah. uh, I'm going to go let people know if you, you're not you know, new at this, you know, I'm going to give a little bit of background, bear with me here in case you, you your experience here. But so longer tail keyword generally has a, a, a greater conversion, right? But less sales. So higher yeah. conversion, less sales, mid tail keyword, you get kind of a middle conversion, right? You get a decent amount of, uh, of sales, Um, but it's still not the top keyword. And then a primary keyword has actually a lot of times will have the lowest conversion, right? Because it's not specific enough. (laughs) So some examples here, longer tail keyword, blue water bottle with straw, right? And then a mid tail keyword would be a blue water bottle, for example. And then, uh, and then a primary keyword would be the base keyword of water bottle. Now, when you think about this in a, uh, in context, okay, if you're going on to Amazon and searching just you yourself and you go in and you say, I want a blue water bottle with a straw. If a blue water bottle with a straw pops up in, you know, the top three results, most likely you, you, your possibility of getting a conversion on that sale is really high. Now, if yeah. you, if they search for a blue water bottle and you're one of thousands that of a blue water bottle, but there's, you know, they're not searching for one with a specific straw or a top or anything like that, you may get the conversion, but it's a lot less likely than that more specific search. Last mm-hmm. but not least, if somebody just types in water bottle, they are on they're in explorer mode, right? They're not necessarily ready to buy that water bottle. They're going to click through and go, oh, here's a blue water bottle with a straw. And then they'll go back to the search bar and say, I want a blue water bottle with a straw and then convert on that keyword. So yeah. that, I just wanted to really make that uh, comparison because a lot of people, I think, always try to go for the top tier keywords. And that's where they end up just burning through a ton of money and not getting a lot of results. Exactly. Yeah. And when they burn that money, they haven't got the opportunity to rise again. You know, you, you get very little room for the maneuver is when you make a mistake on a launch product and you're new, new to Amazon. Right. Because let's just say you've got 15 to 20 K. You burn through that very easy. Three grand on PPC can be yeah. easily done. And, and, and you don't get you don't get another shot if you've got you haven't got the money to, to sustain those kind of losses. Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, but you know, you know, a lot of people don't realize a lot of times the first week or two of PPC is, is literally research, right? It's literally, yeah. you're spending money to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And a lot of people think that they're going to just be successful out of the gate. So 
uh, you know, just some basic thing guys, things guys to think about when you, when you're, when you're kind of testing, if you're being successful or not in, in PPC, I see it over and over again, people dropping in, you know, after a couple of weeks saying, yeah, you know, my ACOS is over a hundred percent and, you know, I'm getting killed here. I'm like, you know, that's in the research phase. That's not, not uncommon. That can happen, especially if you're in a, a super competitive niche. So, and I would love to just add the biggest mistake that I'm seeing people make is using advanced PPC strategies taught by people who know what they're doing on brand new products with huge keyword lists on products that have not indexed yet for relevancy. And so what ends up happening is they spend that whole budget and they haven't indexed properly. And as you mentioned, Danny, you lose your chance and it ends up costing you more to relaunch and try to regain your traction because now you've told the algorithm, oh, I am all of these things and half of them you're going to get bad data for. So it's like, oh man, I, I'm seeing that people are applying these very advanced strategies and I'll take a look at their campaigns and they haven't ranked first or become relevant to the algorithm first for those super relevant medium to long tail keywords that are going to help them get that initial boost that they need. The other one is, which is difficult to measure is, and it, it, it could be achieved, but you can't reach statistical significance with it. If you've got only long tail, let's say you've got a stack of long tail keywords, you run your business based on that. Like in order to reach statistical significance, you need to reach one, a threshold and you have a time period set that you measure over. You can't measure conversions over a, a nine month period and put that in as a, a statistical element that is going to be a, a modifier for your business. It just doesn't work because there's too many different variables there and there's too many seasons that are taking place in between. So it makes it very hard to manage accounts that way if you only focus on pure long tail without any middle or head tail, whatever name you want to give the two upper tiers keywords, you know, the description. Absolutely. All right, Danny. Well, we've just proven that we have to have you back on so we can dig into more of this stuff because uh, I know that uh, we could all geek out on this stuff for hours and hours and hours. I know I could, um, especially the, the PPC and algorithm stuff. That's, you know, that's what I, I love to turn dials on that stuff. But in the meantime, tell people where they can, uh, you know, get a hold of your content, uh, get a hold of you and uh, kind of what, what's next for you. Cool. Yeah, just sellersessions.com visit there add to the podcast if you need to get hold of me email danny at sellersessions.com or if it's data brill related to ppc danny at databrill.com uh right now i'm just uh I, I i said off call i won't go into too much detail but i'm booking out a load of gigs at the moment for next year just working on that we've got uh seller poll which will come up in um september so seller poll number three uh, branded by William will be uh, ready to go for January next year. A lot of the stuff I'm working on now is actually for next year. So I won't be able to say too much about those things. I'm trying to get seller sessions live sorted because it sold out last May. It's there. I've just got to deliver the event. But the problem we've got is the, uh, the issue with COVID. So until we put the US on the green or amber list, the speakers can't travel without quarantine because it's 14 days and I can't expect them to do that. And most of the lineup are um, from the US. So that's one of the frustrations at the moment is because what's been beautiful about the US, like Amy, you went over and did prosper, right? Great. Got together with everyone. It was good. And, you know, I know that a few people got COVID, but that's to be expected, right? This is 
people will get together. The world's got to bloody open up at some point and we just be as careful as possible. Um, but yeah, it's uh, we haven't had that chance to do that in England yet. Um, so it'd be nice that day comes round where everyone can fly in and we can put on a big event, big happy family, learn some content, go out and party and human contact, I think is so important, engagement of human contact. Absolutely, Danny. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate you being on. We, like I said, we got to have you on again. Um, if you guys haven't done so yet, uh, check out Seller Sessions. Like I said, awesome podcast. Uh, Danny has some great guests. They go deep into, uh, into Amazon. Um, so definitely check that out, guys. And as usual, if you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate all the feedback you guys give us. Uh, we try to improve the best way we can. We try to bring on people that you want, uh, you know, go, go into topics that you want to hear. So uh, if you want to reach out, please do so to either Amy or I um, and let us know if you guys have any ideas on who you want on the show. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, in Idaho now and this is the, I didn't even know this before I moved here, but this is where uh, ClickFunnels originated and I'm starting to get to know some of the guys around here. So uh, we are going to have some clicks, ClickFunnels people um, on the uh, podcast here, some higher echelon people, which will be pretty, pretty cool. So we'll be announcing that soon, guys. And uh, as usual, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to do so live, sellaroundtable.com forward slash live Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Thank you so much, guys. And we'll see you next time on the Seller Roundtable. Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, SellerSEO.com and AmazingAtHome.com.